Welcome to Obsessed Show, a podcast that is designed to inspire, featuring some of the most creative people in the world. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Welcome to season four of Obsessed Show. You'll note that we are no longer calling it Obsessed with Design. This season, we'll still be chatting with designers from branding, illustration, architecture, and design thinking, but we'll also be talking to other makers and creatives along the way. In fact, when we started the show, the plan all along was to broaden out and talk to other guests eventually, which was part of why our website and Twitter handle and Instagram are all Obsessed Show. If you're into what we're doing here, you might also want to check out my personal branding and marketing tips called 59 Second Friday. That's over at youtube.com slash Josh Miles. That's enough about season four. Let's talk about today's episode. Today on Obsessed Show, I'm sitting down with Christian Beck, executive design and strategy partner at Innovate Map, a digital product agency in Indianapolis and the co-host of Better Product podcast, a show that talks to product leaders and executives about the good, the bad, and the ugly of ideating, designing, and creating game-changing digital products. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Christian Beck. Okay, kids, if you remember episode number 107 with Anna Saraceno, she was one of our most popular guests last year, and we actually got a chance to do that one in person because even though she works for Trello, she is based here in Indianapolis. So Christian Beck is actually part of that team that introduced me to Anna. So we're actually sitting down again in person to chat with Christian. We'll link to Anna's episode 107 in the show notes. So today I'm excited to talk to Christian Beck, executive design and strategy partner at Innovate Map and co-host of the Better Product Podcast, which we will also link to. Christian, welcome to Obsessed Show. Thanks for having me. And I want to mention that I think half the reason I'm on this show is because I, I really want to try to do better than Anna Saraceno. So just <laughs> I want to get that out there. But now that you're plugging hers and mine, it feels unfair. I need, I need her to go back and plug mine when she when uses her popularity. So it was so crazy. I was here in your office for an event carrying my Peak Design bag, and one of your people was like, hey, Peak Design, uh, Anna, our friend, her brother works for Peak and made this weird connection. I was like, oh, man, I'd love to have them on the show. Oh, and so in the, in the avenue of trying to track down the Peak guys, I got to meet Anna, and I was like, Anna, you should be on the show too. And it's, so it's funny that you guys are now third in line, even though I met you guys first. And knew Michael for forever, but uh, but finally, <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally, we've got the Innovate Map has has closed the loop. So this is awesome. So um, you know, I'm always excited to talk to designers uh, and you know, kind of creatives of all types these days on the show, which has been kind of a fun a fun twist. But the UX and UI design is always fascinating to me. I've I've seen kind of your, your LinkedIn profile and your path, but maybe for folks who are not familiar with uh, where you've been and where you've gone, you've, you've done some really cool things. So tell us about how you got to this spot at Innovate Map. Yeah, sure. So it all starts at the beginning when I was three. I was No, I'm kidding. I <laughs> was not interested in design that early. I wish I listened to the origin stories and wish that I was interested. I had like, I, I always knew I wanted to be in design, but I definitely didn't. I was a horrible college student and I had no real direction. <laughs> My mom was the one who told me about informatics at IU, and that helped. And then I ran into a professor there, Marty Siegel, who got me interested in, in HCI. 
uh, human computer interaction design, which Anna defined on the show previously. Yeah. Um, so I, that's how I got into it. And, um, it was, that was really the, the, the best marriage of, of tech and people, which is what I ultimately liked. Cause at the time I, I was kind of into tech, but I didn't want to code. This is like early two thousands. It's like, I, I felt like I didn't have a home. I, I liked technology, but didn't like, like it. And I, <laughs> I liked people, but not enough to become an anthropologist. Just not um, that into it. <laughs> exactly. So this, when HCI came out, I was like, it w- it felt like the, the coupling of technology and, and liberal arts. So that's really where it kind of started to me, started for me. And then I went to the master's program and, um, and I loved it. Um, and it's also funny too, because I, I've never really considered myself a, a creative person or the quintessential, like, you know, turtleneck designer or, or really good at art or any, really anything that I thought made a good designer, I felt like I wasn't good at. Um, but HCI kind of changed that. So interaction design, UX design was a little bit different. So, um, yeah. So after getting my master's at, at IU in 07, I, uh, started working at Autodesk designing AutoCAD vertical software. So most, most things you look at in your daily life have have started with some sort of Autodesk software. And um, so, yeah, that's where I got my start there. And it was, you know, Windows based Windows XP even like, I mean, it was it was some old school type software <laughs> um, and, it, and, and an old company. It was it was started in 82 and I started there in 2007. So um, I got to learn a lot there and, and uh, understand what good software looks like and um, so that's really how I got my start was, was five years at, at Autodesk. And then from there moved back home to Indianapolis and, and worked at a Primo, which had just gotten acquired by Teradata, a Primo marketing software. It's marketing operation software for extremely large marketing teams, mm-hmm. like in the hundreds or thousands of employees. And then, um, so I did that for a few years. Um, and that was great. Got to help lead and build a design team there, which is really what I had wanted to do next in my career. Um, and then one day everything kind of changed when, when our, uh, CEO of innovate map approached me about starting an agency and, and that sort of changed the, the course of my career from then. So it's been about five years since that, that fateful day. So I've been leading the design team, um, and sort of overseeing the, the company growth and marketing and, and all that for, for innovate maps since 2015. How big was that team to begin with? Which team? The Innovate Map team? Yeah. Um, at the time that Mike approached me, it was him and, and me, and he had a few more people in mind. Yeah. Um, so we had a few people, I would say, through that year. We you know, we had uh, Lacey Lavies and, and Tina Hafer, who are also on our executive team. And Lacey was a product manager, and, and Tina was, was in sales. And so we kind of rounded out what we felt was a good product team. I, I represented the product design side. Uh, Tina represented strategy and, and, and marketing. Um, Mike also on the, the strategy side as well. And then, and then Lacey owned you know, product management. And at the time we didn't really do any brand. We just sort of mm-hmm. worked with the brands as they, as they were. So that was the, the, the pretty much the early team in 2014. Um, when I was kind of moonlighting on the side and then full time, once we had enough, runway that we felt comfortable uh then i left full to, to join full-time in 2015 and we were at five people nice. now we're at 21 now so. 21 awesome and and about to take over another floor of this building i understand well we already have the floor we are we just never really did much with it we are taking it over improper <laughs> such as fixing the awful plumbing that's up there and and adding a, a podcast recording slash you know remote you know zoom room uh, meeting room 
Nice. Well, um, maybe tell us a little bit about what your what your role looks like today and what like an average day, average week yeah. looks like for you. Yeah. So I have design in my title, which feels a little bit uh, like I, far away from I don't say designer anymore. So I've, I've removed the ER, which means I don't actively design. <laughs> I'm just involved in it. I have a strong opinions on it. Um, and so to give my, a quick journey and innovate, Matt, when we started, I was doing UX design for scale up tech companies in, in Indy. So uh, taking products that had done well and seen some success, but needed effectively renovations. So kind of mm-hmm. came up with calling these UX renovations. That's what it felt like um, in the beginning, like a house with good bones that needed somebody to come in and like modernize it, like make the kitchen a little more functional or like make it open floor plan. So just modernizing um, the user experience. So that was me for a while um, for the first couple of years. But as I hired more designers and brought some of my old team with me, I did it with the hopes that I would, well, let me rephrase that. I never hoped to stop designing. I just always wanted people to be that were better than me. So I hired people Mm -hmm. that, I hoped would be better than me and eventually the writing would be on the wall and that happened a couple of years ago. I was like, you know, uh, the team is better than me. I'm going to move on to, to, to do other things. So um, over the last couple of years, I've been sort of moving out of the active design role and working more overseeing and checking in with our design team, with our research team and working with the the clients that we work with, with the founders or whoever it is to help translate these big visions for the team. So, um, my role as a designer is, is, is pretty much gone as it were, but I, I at least have enough experience that if you give me an hour, I can, I can help, you know, course correct a, a design sure. work. Um, so yeah, so I think today my role is a lot more focused on growing the innovate map company, mentoring our design team and, and figuring out, um, how to kind of like leverage our, our, our company brand and, and marketing, um, as well. So on a day-to-day basis, I'm probably doing a little bit of sales, which sounds gross and it feels a little gross, but it's <laughs> what you have to do to, to survive. Um, it's also content marketing. So writing, writing stuff, you know, brainstorming what we should be doing, doing the, the better product podcast. Um, and then also working with a couple key clients at a time where we're at the formative stages if a startup's coming and has, you know, these audacious plans and, and trying to help bring down a, a, a 10 year vision to something that can be executed on in the next six months. Um, so that's kind of my, my day-to-day role. It's, it's sort of alternates between sales, marketing, and, and just overseeing design and some of our key client relationships. So maybe just to add a little bit more clarity for our listeners who are not familiar with innovate map, um, what's, what's kind of an ideal client situation for you guys? Where, like, where would you start and where do your services kind of bookend? Yeah. So we have a few ways. And if you see our website, it's kind of structured around three key client profiles, a startup, a scale up and a tech enabled company. So with a startup, you're coming to us really sometimes, literally we've actually had napkin sketches or, or whiteboard sketches um, where we're starting with, with you. And so you have a founding team that might have different, and one might be a full stack developer, the other is really good at sales. And then, so we plug in and play this role. Sometimes a founding team has somebody who knows product and they need UX. And so it, it changes, but for a startup, we're trying to be the virtual product team, uh, that you might not be able to afford, or you just might not have the time to sort of 
give the right focus. So we try to offload that burden on you to try to get you over the hump. So in the first couple of years, um, you need product, you need UX, you need strong brand, product marketing and positioning and messaging. Um, but those aren't always necessarily your first, you know, four or five hires. Mm-hmm. They're critical, but they don't necessarily always have to be there. I mean, a lot of times you're playing to the strengths of the founding team. If you're good at selling, you go out and, and paint the vision. So then we we design screens that help you sell the vision. Um, when you're a scale up, what that means to us is you have found success in the market. You are doing well. You have you have figured out what's working, basically. So think about companies that go into the Series A round. That's sort of what we're talking about. But I'm not mm-hmm. going to get into that because my <laughs> my knowledge of investment is 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 not great. But I, I know enough. We'll leave that to the other Christian on the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Talk to Christian with a K. That's that's the guy for that. For me we'll link to that show too. Yeah. For me it's it's um looking at it from do you know what works in your product? Because at that point, when you're scaling up, you're typically trying to find either go after a new market, uh, like a different vertical, or you're trying to go upstream or downstream, meaning you're you're handling you know, small, medium sized businesses, let's say, you know, 50 to 100 employees, which that is probably smaller than most would call uh, an SMB. But you say, okay, and we want to move up to the enterprise or we're focused on enterprise, want to move downstream. So when we talk about scaling up, it means something's working. And so we don't want to come in and, and, and revamp everything. Um, so in those cases, we're almost like, um, almost like a SWAT team to come in and, and like, give you an injections. You say, we're, we are good. They might even have a designer in house. They might have product marketers in house, but they, but they're busy keeping the lights on and really like iterating on what's already working. We come in to be the outside team and taking that and spinning up like the next thing for you. But, but the ideal thing is when we get done doing that, the new brand or the new, you know, the new product design, it goes back to your team and then they can, they can run with it. Um, and then the third, that's, probably the biggest area for growth that I think we see a lot of, um, is the tech enabled. So what that means is you have a business that isn't necessarily predicated on technology, Mm -hmm. but you are enabling it to do something with technology. And that has a lot of different flavors that I won't get into, but, um, the, the point is, and why this is so big today is technology is so easy to do almost anything with. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's not even just like the bootstrap framework that came out like seven years ago for web design. It's deeper than that. It's like AWS and a bunch of other acronyms that I barely understand where (laughs) you can, or Firebase or like all these ways that you can get apps up on the cloud. Like back in the day, you'd have to spend, you know, thousands and thousands on servers and all that, but now you don't have to. So with that, the sort of flattening of technology, means that other businesses can actually utilize it a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're at a state in the market where if your business doesn't have tech involved in some way, you don't really have a a, a chance, but that doesn't mean you have to be a tech business. So that's tech enabled. So we pair in a much similar way with with those as well. But um, I would say a lot of times we're trying to execute on something. We don't want to establish like your agency of choice for life. We're trying to three, six, 12, 18 month engagement, whatever it makes sense to get you over to execute on those business goals. And then we tr- hopefully are in a position to sort of hand off our work to somebody that you're hiring in house. It was a very long answer, but hopefully it was a good one. 
Well, yeah, I, and I think those tech-enabled companies, I mean, maybe this is a little bit of an exaggeration right now, but at some time in the very, very near future, that's pretty much everybody, right? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. the, the boutique down on the corner is probably going to need to be tech-enabled at some point. To, right, I mean, if you think about, yeah, if you think about even stuff we wouldn't traditionally think of tech, like um, Warby Parker, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm wearing Warby Parker glasses, is that a tech company? Absolutely not. It's, it's a glasses eyewear company. And their business model doesn't really have anything to do with tech, but it enables them to do what they do well, you know, handling customer service, mm-hmm. at-home try-on, using iPhone X Face ID to try these AR glasses on without driving down the street. Stitch Fix, not a tech company either, but they can't do what they do without it. And even here locally, Cluster Truck, who often gets lumped together with tech companies, but I think a lot of people would be confused by that. Like food delivery, this isn't tech, but (laughs) they can only execute what they do, like food that's not just pizza, they get delivered fresh and high quality because of the tech that's behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Warby Parker and Stitch Fix, Cluster Truck, none of those are sponsors of the show, but if they would like to be, they would, <laughs> they can and reach out. And I would out. say here in Broad Ripple, Cluster Truck still doesn't come here. So just want to, oh, man, would love that. But every time we have a meeting downtown, I'm, I'm hoping to get it. So yeah, well, yeah, when I did work down on the circle in downtown Indianapolis, Cluster Truck was a regular call. Yeah, good, it's good great. stuff. And I've heard so many negative things about other food delivery services and i always had great hot food from them so right and it all are on it it's really all about the tech it's just nobody sees it and so that's what we talk about with enabling tech sometimes you buy slack for the tech like you're you're paying Mm -hmm. money for this tech product and i expect to get this value out of it but with cluster truck honestly nobody cares i just want high quality food and tech is the thing that actually makes that possible i mean growing up you had pizza companies and literally that's it. And then you, and then they were all saying we'd get there in 30 minutes or less. And you were just hoping they didn't. So you got it free. Now it's like, we look at cluster truck and technology. It's like open the door in so many different ways. Well, tell me a little bit about, um, I want to talk about process, but maybe before we jump into that of those three client groups, which one is just kind of like your personal favorite? What's, what's like your perfect, situation to walk into where you feel like you're ready to save the day well this is like asking somebody who's your favorite kid because now i'm publicly (laughs) saying this but i love them all um i i would have to say um i truly do like different aspects of each but i think there's elements to startups that i enjoy that get me excited in ways that i don't for others now i truly and when i say this i truly mean it so if anybody wants to roll their eyes just trust me i mean this earnestly that <laughs> i still like helping large companies make it as well so in the midwest in, in particular we have a lot of older companies whether it's insurance healthcare, manufacturing trucking mm-hmm. um and i take a lot of pride in our, our agency is a lot of passion for helping these really good businesses like bridge this gap too and, and, and make it over this collective hurdle. We don't want everybody to get disrupted, um, especially in the Midwest where we have a lot of good businesses. And so I really enjoy that. So I'm going to get that out of the way. Yeah. I like startups the best because I, I like working with the founders that they bring a lot of energy and it's really nice to see the constant stream of new ideas that come out. And I, I love feeling like I've got a chance to help them make it real. Um, And so I I, I probably enjoy startups the most because there's nothing out there. Like it it just doesn't exist. So taking something that's just, just an idea that maybe started with two people in a bar or at lunch 
and then they bring it to us and and we're helping them bring that to life i, I take a lot mm-hmm. of pride in so i think this has been a common uh story over the last 10 years is that um designers or product designers you know they get so used to doing this for others that eventually they go well why don't we have our own thing like what's our product we should make a product is that like a current initiative for you guys is that anything you can talk about uh sure i'm happy to talk about it um it was a it was a dream at one point that we shut down so yeah yeah we've we've been through that and i don't know that we'll close the door forever on it but um i feel like we are a tech enabled agency we use existing tech really really well mm-hmm. to facilitate the work that we do, whether it's through the frameworks we build out in Sketch for designing screens, or whether it's the way we use Slack, um, or or the way that um, the way that we use the plugins for Gmail. I mean, all of these things enable us to do stuff. And so, a few years ago, we did so twice a year. We have a sort of a three day um, we call it Shop Week, where which was inspired actually by, by small box here in, in India as well. Um, we, we have this three day, everybody stops client work. Day one is like recapping the business. And then day two and three is, is all about, uh, brainstorming ideas that can help push the business in a new direction. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then, and then a lot of fun after that. But one year we, we set out like, let's figure out what a product would look like for us. And I think at the end of it, we realized and we did full designs, like it was clickable prototypes and we're not a development agency, so we didn't code it, but basically we were mm-hmm. trying to see, is there something enough here that we would do it? And it just felt like it wasn't better than what we had. It, it wasn't better enough to go down that road. Yeah. Plus, as I'm sure some people will know, if they've tried to do this, once you spin up a new product, it's a new, it's just its own thing. You don't just get to like build a product and like sell it in house. We're an agency <laughs> right. that's focused on client work. If we were to really build a product, we'd have to take it seriously and like devote a, a team to it or and spin up a new company. So well, I, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind for listeners who are thinking through that. I know it's, uh, you know, I've been part of those conversations so many times. Well, why don't we just make this or that? And, and, and I've been down similar paths myself where we've started it, created it, run it for a little bit. Then like, Hmm, this is actually a whole nother business to yeah. chase around. And well, and, and that's the thing you look at it and say, well, so from a design standpoint, like we could design that. And so then your, your, your mind is like, well, that's all I see. I could design that. And you think that that's all the work. Or if you're a developer, right. you're like, oh, I could build a prototype for that in two weeks. And so everybody looks at it through their lens. But in the end, like to actually make a product successful, you've got to market it. It's got to have a strong brand. Then you have to, who's selling it? Who are you targeting? And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, never mind. <laughs> I think I'll just <laughs> stick with what we've got. Did I say that? Uh, well, let's come back to where I started to go there a minute ago was process. So tell me a little bit about what that looks like, how, so maybe we'll go down the, the startup route in particular, since that's your favorite. Okay. Yeah. I like <laughs> and we'll them talk all, about yeah. what that looks like when a startup shows up with napkin sketches or just, you know, as little as two guys and a good idea or as much as like a fully fleshed out business plan, you know, how do you guys get started with them? And then what's that timeline look like? Yeah. Um, so the, the two people that with the napkin sketch to, to really like engage with us have got to come with some money. And I bring that up because we're not free, but I bring that up because I think that's a particular type of founder. Mm -hmm. Then there's types of founders that are, are, are actually just trying to get, trying to get funding. So working with 
the G beta accelerator here in Indy, like a lot of there's, and there's two or three more accelerators starting in Indy this year. There's a lot more early stage founders that actually even aren't at that level to use. So for some of them, we're actually starting with the pitch deck. We're actually starting to help them take their idea and, and get it inside and in, in, into the right story in the pitch deck. We stay away from TAM, you know, total addressable mark, anything with numbers in it, we stay away from. <laughs> um, but we'll help you tell a proper story. And sometimes screens, you know, mock-ups of the mobile app or the, the, the web app will help tell that story. Um, and then sometimes we'll put brand through it just to, 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 to establish the voice and, and all that through a pitch deck. So a lot of them will actually start right there. Um, especially if you don't just come with deep pockets or had previous exits and you know exactly how to spin this up, it's a slightly different thing. So, so you guys are helping not just with the product itself, but also with the brand identity and with the story of the brand and how to, how to pitch the product. Yeah. And when I said earlier, when the agency didn't have brand in the beginning is because we were focusing on scale ups where the brand had been established and that wasn't our primary value. Once we started moving more into startups, we started getting startups that actually didn't have a brand. And so we're like, wait a second, we also need to add that. So um, we have Andy Kennedy, who's who's one of our principal designers in Overseas Brand Join, and he kind of built that out as well. So now I feel like we have pretty much everything you need and product for a startup. But yeah, in the very beginning, um, you know, not every startup is lucky to have you like overseeing the brand from the start. A lot of engineers, not not necessarily their strong suit yeah. um, to, to worry about brand. So yeah, we're, we're focusing on that from the very beginning. So when we go from, so we imagine the pitch deck and they get funding, the first thing we, we start with, I mean, our, our process is always going to start with some amount of research. Um, a lot of times if it's a brand new product, you don't have users to go talk to cause that's like your primary goal. <laughs> so we have creative ways to go look at the market, go find who you might be targeting. And, and some of it might just be relying on you as a founder to represent it. If you come from the industry, well, we're going to rely on, on, on sort of your take on it to start. But from the research that helps us formalize what are the highest priority things. A lot of founders, the way I always talk about it is they have like a 10 or 20 year vision, which is what drives them to do that. But the market doesn't see it like that. They need something that they can see in like three months. So we, we've tried to figure out what are the, the highest priority features that you should even be putting in your product. And that's on the, the sort of UX and, and product management side, the PM side. On the other side, on the product marketing, uh, what we're also doing is starting to craft, you know, your messaging, your what position do you take in the market? What message are you going to go with? And, and there's probably brand involved in that at this point, although sometimes we do sort of lightweight preliminary brands in the beginning just to get you something, knowing mm-hmm. that, you know, once you get some traction, we're going to come back and, and do a full refresh of it. Um, so the, the, the marketing team is figuring out, okay, if this is what you're building, this is how you need to market it to the right buyers. So that's really what we spend this sort of the first three to six months on. Then as things start to come together, the design team would take these initial, I guess I skipped that phase from the research, we design key concepts. So our UX team will design kind of like storyboards for like a Hollywood movie, right? Before you shoot the movie, we have these key, these are like the key anchor points of, of what the app's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, they help us rally around it. Sometimes those screens get used in the pitch decks for funding, or if they have funding, they might've been using, they might be using those in sales. They might go to a prospect and say, this is what we're building. Mm-hmm. Um, now I've referenced Firefest before on a podcast, but I'll reference it again. <laughs> There's a fine line 
between selling something that you can build and selling something that you have like no no way of building. So we make sure that you know when we when we're helping aid like sales we're designing something that we think is feasible and not just hurricane tents. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. We 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 do we don't we don't do any of that. And we try to find founders that don't quite like have that sort of bad blood Theranos like uh, Elizabeth Holmes vibe. But uh yeah, we're but the reality is you you need to sell a product sometimes before it's built. And and so as long as you have a plan for engineering we try to meet it with, okay, we will design something that's buildable. Um, and so that's where we start um, in the very beginnings after we get done with our research is start laying out these concept designs. They're not pie in the sky, they're like real. They're, they're trying to take this real vision and show what we think could be done. At that point, hopefully development starts and we start working with you know a full stack engineer, the lead architect to start getting those screens built. And so our design team then starts to basically shoot the movie. So we have the storyboard that lays out the vision, now we go on set with developers and start shooting the movie, which means we're more in communication. So those five screens become 25 screens and 50 screens as we start working through like what the user's workflow is. They log in, what's the first thing they see? How do they get notified of, 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 of errors or how do they uh, get their reports and their analytics? All these sorts of things that, that, that are pretty common. Um, we start designing alongside with development. So, Fast forward, then you you exit for millions of dollars. <laughs> Somewhere in there is a lot of other work. So the thing that um, we've sort of circled around a little bit, um, and you touched on even your role in sales feeling sometimes a little icky, but but really this is all about driving something that leads to sales for the product, for yeah. the company. So what's your perspective on, on design's influence on success of these products? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say that it's one of the probably lesser, I would say the areas of design of any designer, whether it's brand design or, or, or illustrators or UX design, I think a lot of times um, we, the collective we design community can forget um, the other roles that design play, um, which is the before something's had a chance to even become a reality, you have to convince somebody good design doesn't sell itself. And that took me several years after grad school to truly believe. And I see new, new designers go through the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. It's like being a parent. You, you can't really tell everybody everything, you know, some lessons you just have to learn. But when I watch new designers, they all have to learn the same lesson that good design doesn't sell itself. I have the same thing with developers. Great developed products don't sell themselves either you still have to connect what you're trying to do, what your vision is with a prospective buyer. And that's where mm -hmm. sales comes in. I think it's where yeah. marketing comes in too. So it's, it depends on the type of product. If it's a highly technical product or there's, you know, it's enterprise level, you have this outbound sales that's, you know, direct sales that's doing a lot of like walkthroughs with, with customers. But in other side where it's maybe more B2C or more organic, um, you might lean more on your product marketing to help sell the product on your website or through social or through content. But either way, design is has to be weaved into that. Mm -hmm. The the sort of soapbox that I've been standing on for the last couple months is realizing that the you in UX is really not helpful when you're designing something that has no users. And yes, you're designing for a prospective user, for sure. Um, and the principles I learned in design school they're all true today and they're that you can still design without users because the principles mm -hmm. are true. But the truth is that 
a lot of your efforts don't don't need to prioritize some of that sort of user experience work. So it doesn't mean that it's it's a it doesn't mean it's an excuse to not do good UX. It just might help you figure out where your efforts are, are going to lie. So you might say, I want a really great login experience. Well, maybe you say if they're logging in, they've already bought the product. So maybe maybe we're not worried about that quite as much. Let's focus one level up. Like, how do they even get started yeah. using the product? Like. Maybe design starts focusing on what would a free trial look like or what would a freemium offering look like if that becomes mm -hmm. a strategy to help your product have some sort of organic growth. That's kind of outside of the user experience because you're actually talking about how do you translate the marketing into the product. So it's like this onboarding, this, this onboarding aspect. Um, so and that's even like a self-service kind of product concept versus a super enterprise sale where you've got, you know, people showing up and shaking hands and walking through pitch decks before anybody ever sees the software. Right. So, and I would assume you guys have sort of a mix of that between the more I think, enterprise yeah, stuff and the more. If I were, I, mean, I, I kind of was like maybe a little bit ignorant and some hubris to think that I wanted everything to have a self-service play. Now I've realized it's a little more nuanced than that, but I will say the play in software today is at least a hybrid. If, if not, mm -hmm. something needs to, to happen. It doesn't necessarily have to be a free trial. It doesn't always have to be freemium. So I'll never say something dogmatic like everything needs a free trial and needs freemium. But the, the one principle is it needs to be easier for somebody to experience. And it has to be easier than scheduling a one-hour onboarding call. Just in, in, And that's a little bit maybe not true in every domain, but mm -hmm. if you even look at something like Slack or Envision, the Envision for sharing design prototypes or, or Slack, which I'm not going to define because if you don't know, that would be shocking, but they've, they've both grown through organic, organic means. They can, they can land inside of big companies by just making it easy for teams to start using it. And then it, it, it creates like advocates inside the org to sell upwards to say, we need to buy this. Now I'm not saying everybody can apply this, but I think what we're seeing today is a lot more of that, that, that sort of is in, is complementary of sort of the enterprise sales. So Envision does mm -hmm. have enterprise. Anna Saracino is on, you're talking about Trello. Same thing, they have enterprise as well, it's highly customized, but I guarantee most of those people were or are using some easily usable version of Trello to begin with. So yeah, it is definitely. definitely a hybrid. And I think the market has largely changed. Now, if you're like Greenlight Guru here in town and you're doing you know, your quality management software for biomedical devices, Maybe you don't, it's not as easy to get started with that. There's <laughs> FDA regulations, but by and large, there has to be easier ways. Even for them, they do a really great job with content marketing to make it, make it, make you understand what it will be like. And design plays a big role in that. It plays a big role in establishing a brand, which brand and as best as I understand it, basically establishes expectations for what it's going to be like to engage with you. Yeah. And so brands really important in the companies where you do have to have someone walk you through a product. Um, and then so is the, the, the product marketing that's helping pitch the product, which hopefully was designed by designers. So anyway, it's a very long winded explanation to say that designers, especially any types of designers, but especially thinking on the user side, have to understand um, how this product has got to connect with prospective buyers all the time, either through sales demos or through content marketing. Because if you don't kick ass there, you won't have any users to worry about. Who cares how, how good your forms look once you get inside the product if you didn't take a step up and, and look at how it's connecting to those other efforts? So I would imagine it it's not always 
super smooth from the standpoint of the founders walk in with the idea. You guys tell them all the things they need to do. They just say yes to everything and you launch and all cash checks. But, um, you know, in reality, I'm sure there are probably some common either red flags or speed bumps or challenges that you encounter. What What's maybe one of the more common uh, either misconceptions that founders have when they walk in or maybe what are some of the, the biggest friction points in the process of going from idea to product? That's a great question. Let me think of a great, at least a good answer. Maybe <laughs> if I can come up with a great one. Um, I would say, so there's things that we look for when we work with founders. So there's some types of founders we sometimes don't work with. Um, so it's not necessarily that we have to always buy into the idea, but we need to believe that you believe in the idea, which Mm -hmm. is, I mean, yes, there's something I probably won't be doing like a vaping software or something like that. (laughs) Like that, that, that probably isn't there. Um, but I think that overall in terms of the, the ethical side, we want to know that you actually believe in it's bigger than it can't be some business opportunity. That's that you're in it for the money. So we first look for founders that at least are mission driven. The best Mm -hmm. ones that we, that we work with are people that are really driven by a mission, which by the way, is another one of my favorite aspects of working with founders is I'm, it never ceases to amaze me how passionate people can get about very niche things like green light guru. If you go talk to anybody at that company, they are top to bottom all about you know, quality and, and, in their software and the biomedical devices. It's, it's great. And so I love that aspect. So that's what we look for initially. Um, we have different types of relationships with, with clients, but I think the best ones that for, for us are when there's a lot of trust involved, um, mm-hmm. in, in that. So it's kind of hard to, to articulate, but in general, if, if there's not a lot of trust, in in what we can do for you that those ones are a bit are a lot are a lot of they are very challenging it can result in micromanaging us and the work that we do it can result in you know missing expectations on on somebody because they're not giving us all the details on what their vision is so we do our best work if you can share your dreams what you're trying to do the the depths of that because we're not just going to execute what you tell us to do. We're trying to execute. We're, we're trying, we don't know exactly how to get where we're going, Yeah. but if you tell us where we're going, we're going to help you get there. And that might mean you might come to us and say, I think I can get there with UX, but we might say we might back up and through an initial meeting say, I, I hear you and UX will be important, but you should really start with the brand and let's like get that established for whatever this might be. And so if we can, if we can get that trust that you see that, look, this agency has all areas of product and we're going to be a virtual team member for you, which means that we're going to help you look out and say, if something's not the right thing that you're telling us to do, we're going to push back. Um, if you can establish that trust in us, that I think is probably the most fundamentally critical factor in, in success. Yeah. I think that trust thing is huge. And I think even you, when you get to a point where you're looking at your client and saying, we really think this is what you should do, even though it's different than what the client initially asked for. Yeah. It's, trust is the thing that gets that across the goal line. Or- that's in, and unfortunately with my personality, that's usually my role to break the hard truth. Sometimes the clients and sometimes <laughs> it goes well and sometimes it doesn't, but um, most of the, the good relationships we've had, some they'll even cite that the reason they keep working with us or want to work with us is because we've pushed back against something. And it's mm-hmm. always respectful and all that. It's not like 
we don't get we don't get excited to push back for the sake of doing it. It's just if we have a really good dialogue, I think if any relationship, you know, your spouse or a friend, if you have a good relationship, you have to be able to trust that person and and allow that person to kind of push back against some things that they might think is not think is best for you. And we get to be an outsider. So when you're inside the startup, you create a bubble. You have to. You create a bubble. You create this vision, this dream that everybody has day to day. We get to live outside that bubble for you. And, and you get to come to the office and let us in there. But when you walk out, we're on the outside. So we always we always have a position of giving perspective to people. And, and, and so that's why I think it's always valuable if we can sort of give them that outside perspective on, I know you think this is your biggest thing, but I've looked at this, I've thought about this and I just don't think it is. And if, and if they can trust us with those sorts of opinions, um, those, those relationships go really well. Um, and tell me about one of your proudest professional moments. Hmm. Professional moments. Um, well, I suppose starting this agency would be one of them and I'll probably, I'll just say something really sappy, but I've thought about this question ahead of time. So this is a real <laughs> answer <laughs> because I thought about what I would say if you were to ask me this question. Um, I would say at this point in my career, my, the proudest moments I have are watching other team members present some work that was theirs, especially if they've overcome some sort of adversity or had mm -hmm. to, because I, I truly believe for me. I love the work that I got to do. So I, I, I did design work. I was actively designing for about 11 or 12 years. Mm -hmm. I miss it today. I mean, trust me, I, I, I want to open sketch and get started on something all the time. Um, but my team wouldn't grow if I just kept doing something like that. And I don't think it would be best for the company, but so I've had to really, um, focus on my mentorship and, and trying to help others, you know, rise up. So when I get to watch, people on our team, it could be a visual identity for a new startup that's totally outside the box. That's not safe. And we, we, I love when our, I love, I take a lot of pride when I see our designers present something that's like really unsafe, meaning it's like way yeah. out there. And I know the client profile and I'm like, wow, I wouldn't have had the guts to present that. Um, and then I love when the UX team, you know, finds hidden ways to execute on, on a high level business goal that the client never would have thought of and that I probably never would have thought of. So yeah, the lame, but true answer to your question is my proudest achievement is watching <laughs> the design team that we've grown at innovate map continue to excel. Cause this was my dream probably from the beginning, I always thought, Oh, I want to be a manager. Then I became one. I was like, Nope, that sucks. But what I really wanted to do <laughs> was help other people get good. Cause I never yeah. thought I was the best at what I did, but I thought I could be the best at making other people the best at what they do. So I am proud to watch the other team sort of excel and push themselves. Well, I is think that lame or is that? No, I think your, your <laughs> statement earlier that lines up with you saying you want to hire people that would either be better than you eventually or, or already were. And then the, to kind of bring them in and grow them up and then to see them take that, that big first step, it is kind of like, kind of like a proud parent moment yeah. to, to see them kind of go out on a limb. And well, it, it, I was, I, it kills me how many people don't hire people they think are gonna be better than them, whether it's ego or fear, right. but I just, I don't know any other way. And for me, it, it keeps pushing me because if I hire somebody who's going to do something I do is I better figure out the next thing I'm going to do. And that's how I find myself in this position of 
marketing, which is not my background at all because it's what I thought the business needed and I was interested in. And so I'm working on getting better at that. And then at some point I'll be like, Hey, you're probably better at this. I mean, I'm gonna have to find the next thing. So I like always having people like sort of behind me, pushing me to, to get better or move on to other things. So hiring people that you think are better than you is I think the only way to do it. Um, as long as you're prepared to, uh, continue to push yourself in new areas. Yeah. And I think the, the good news or bad news that I hadn't really thought all the way through, but, um, you know, looking back on my former agency, how many of my former employees now have their own agencies that are thriving. So it's, um, that's, that's the other side to it. When you bring in people right. who, you know, who are going to be better than you eventually, they're going to want to strike out on their own and yeah. do their own thing. And, and that's, you know, it's a mixed emotion thing. Cause you're like, man, I don't want them to leave, but it's so cool. Well, thanks for that. To Buzz see Kill. somebody. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> thought about that, but that's it's great. It's so cool to no, see yeah, them, it is. you know, doing something similar and, and succeeding in that way as well. No, it's, you're right. It's, it's a risk, but the alternative is you hire deliberately so that they, that doesn't happen. And then you're hiring people that aren't great. Um, or you're doing things to sort of like, you know, stifle their growth. But right. as an agency to, I'm definitely aware of that, that fear. And we haven't found our first person yet for five years, but it, it will happen. Somebody is going to want to do their own thing. But mm -hmm. the way that we've tried to structure the agency is really just, we try to provide infinite opportunities for people. One of the yeah. reasons we do that shop week twice a year is we want people to, to spin up their own projects and, and sort of take that on their own. So I feel like if we can continue to do, maybe I'm na naive, but if we can continue to give people those opportunities to create their own mini projects and mini initiatives inside the company, hopefully it will scratch that itch. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I'm sure at some point somebody will leave and, and start some competitive agency and then we'll like go to war and it'll be like Steve jobs and, <laughs> and, and Bill Gates or something. Hopefully. And we can have a really fun podcast about that. <laughs> I'll be back to talk about that one for sure. Um, what are some of your dream projects? Are there, there any, any big clients or types of projects that you haven't tackled yet that you're really anxious to do? Oh, great question. I was just thinking about this the other day because I was at this um, ag bioscience startup um, startup event where there, there was a bunch of startups and agriculture, you know, biology sciences, mm -hmm. um, you know, pitching. And I think there's a, this is a great pun. It's a big green field in, in ag tech <laughs> really is, <laughs> but it is because, um, again, it's a part, great dad joke. Yeah. yeah I am a dad. Just want to warn the, the listeners. Yeah. So, um, we're in the Midwest, which has a lot of farming. Honestly, a lot of places. California has a lot of farming too, but, um, and they do a lot in the ag tech space, but Indiana particularly has, you know, a, a rich, long storied history of agriculture. So I'm interested to see that. And if anybody pays attention to the climate and the, the population, whether we, whether we think it or not, when we can go get any food we want, um, at any hour of the day, uh, it's a, it's a pretty big situation that's got to get solved. And, yeah. and so I think I, I like to see the innovation there. Um, and I'm very excited about the prospect of, of getting some of that work to help because I think the scientists that are working on these things and the engineers could use help getting this out there. But I think it's a really big, uh, open space, um, that, that I think is big, not just for Indiana, but, but really for the world. So I'm, I'm hoping to get clients in that area. Cause I'd love to help. And I don't really know the first thing about it, which I think is, I also like 
pretty much any industry where I get to learn the industry. I mean, we've had, yeah, you know, trucking, you know, we've had, you know, deals and we've had clients that are in trucking. I don't know anything about it, but I love that I got to learn about it. Um, so I, I love any, any new area like that. So I hope to get to do that. And then I would also say more consumer side it's B2C is still not where it should be in the Midwest in particular. It's not heavily invested in. And so I really want to see more people succeed there. And, and I, I hope we get a chance to help some of these consumer side startups have a chance to succeed in Indy. So I'm hoping to get a few more of those in the next couple of years. Cool. Good answer. Um, so you guys have had exposure, of course, with product marketing and product design and branding. Uh, I'm curious if there are any other groups that you look up to out there. You have any design heroes in particular? Design heroes. That's uh, so not a great answer. I also thought about this one ahead of time, and uh, I don't. I, I couldn't think of any. I don't follow a lot of the the sort of like wildly popular design heroes, and I'm not going to say their names because it just I'm, sounds like I'm being a jerk. And part of that's just my nature. I, I, if I, if I'm anything, I'm, I'm partly contrarian, like for the sake of it. But um, <laughs> I have a lot of thought leaders in the design space that informed me early on. And it's part of my not having heroes right at the moment is because I fo- design is not my biggest focus. But if I think back to like my formative like design growth years, honestly, my professors at IU, so Eric Stolterman and Marty Siegel for sure. Eric Stolterman comes from, from Sweden and brings that sort of school of thought from design. And he writes several books. Now I'm not going to say that you can look up the books. These are not easy books. These are not like Ted talks or really lightweight books. They're dense. And so I don't know that I can read them at this point in my life, but when I did, it changed the way I thought about design. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that those, those were some of my early ones. I, I, even though I know he's been getting bashed lately, John Maeda, uh, he was at the Rhode Island, you know, School of Design, and and now he's at Automatic, which oversees WordPress. I still think he's a great design mind. He's not inflammatory, and I even though people are very angry with some of the stuff he said recently, he's still one. I suppose if I had one other one who is on the opposite end who loves being inflammatory, would be Mike Montero. I, I but I every time yeah. he says something, it needs to be said, and I love his practical sensibility about design which is what I like about John Maeda as well. Both of them are two that are not active designers, but they, they are, they have a practical sensibility for like design's role in the world. And when they say things, people disagree with it, which is a good sign because it it creates a good discourse. Every time either one of them says something, the office is debating it, which is great because there's no one, one right perspective. But, um, those would be two that I, I at least look to if they write an article or say something, I'm, I'm definitely reading it. Well, I think, people who can, uh, have a strong point of view. Those, those are the people who are often more interesting to pay attention to because like, wow, that resonated with me. And I can't believe that's the first time I've heard it really put together like that. Or wow, that's crazy. (laughs) I can't believe he said that, you know, that, well, and it's deeper than anybody can have a hot take on Twitter and design. Twitter is full of people that have pithy tweets and they go viral. Um, I could screenshot a million of, I want to start an account where I just screenshot these, these awful hot takes on things really easy to have a hot take that gets people riled up. But like with people like John Maeda and, 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 um, Mike Montero do is they construct actual arguments. I mean, they write articles, Mm -hmm. like it's a different level to go do that. And then it's a different level to actually go speak 
about these things to put yourself in a vulnerable position out there to go do it. So I think anybody who's doing something like that, I, I look up to for sure. Um, is there anything in UX design in particular that kind of drives you crazy? Like a most common <laughs> problem or a, like, haven't we solved this by now kind of issue? Oh, um, gosh, there's probably a million. Give me like 20 minutes to go scan Twitter or LinkedIn right now. And I will, <laughs> I will tell you a million things that drive me crazy. Um, one of the recurring things, I think all fields of design, um, suffer from this is, is thinking too highly of ourselves, which is, I think a little bit was behind John Maeda's recent, you know, things that he had was quoted saying in fast company from his state of design report. Um, I think that we often, we, again, we being collective designers, um, can lose sight of what good design truly means. And so I, I still see this mistake repeated over and over again. And I'll be like full disclosure. When I started, one of the first t-shirts I bought when I moved out to San Francisco was it said design will save the world on it. And that's how I mm -hmm. felt. And then I got rid of that shirt. Cause I was like, I, that's, that's so arrogant and so self-centered. There's like <laughs> a million things that change the world. And I've come to realize by the way, that any phrase where you can replace one of those words with a bunch of other words and it still is true. Yeah. It's not a great phrase. So if you say design will save the world. Well, cooperation will save the world. Engineers, who cares? Every, everything will. Um, but ultimately I, what I started it's actually learning podcasts, podcasts will save the world. <laughs> yes. That's the new thing. That's what we're all collectively believing right now. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that what I had to learn myself and what I think a lot of people still have to learn themselves, and there's no way to always have this perspective is design is but one piece of, of a larger whole. And it does have kind of a unique influence that other fields may not have, but it has to be, it has to be humble and it has to like step outside itself. And so when you're designing and when I see people design, whether it's the, I'm not going to bash dribble cause I'm, I'm actually a supporter of, of dri what dribble does, but the way people might abuse it by creating designs that are compelling to look at and, and devoid of context, it's really easy to do, but yeah. you know, seeing that type of design work, whether it's architecture, creating these amazing 3d models and posting them on Behance, whatever it is, or gosh, the one thing that I still, okay, here we go. Little, little rant. The, what I hate is when somebody does the, the quote unquote unsolicited redesign oh, that right. drives me crazy. I still see Facebook getting designed and I never, I didn't think that was, was still going to happen in, in 2019, but, um, I was railing against unsolicited redesigns like six or seven years ago for designing the redesigning the same thing. It's still Twitter, Facebook. And the reason why, so there's one aspect of it. If you're a design student and you might have an exercise where you're doing it, that's fine. But a lot of people just do that and it gets so easy. And then you look at the comments, people are like, Oh my gosh, why don't they do this? And I'm like, well, where do I start? There's probably a million reasons they don't do this. Right. And a lot of it just has to do with not appreciating everything that goes into it. So if there's one thing I can't stand, it would be that because it shows almost an ignorance of what good design truly means. It means really understanding what you're designing for, who the end users are supposed to be, who the end users are not going to be, and and not about yourself. You know, Design is not art. It is not self-serving. It is meant to serve other people. And so if you don't know who the other people are going to be or what the goals are who cares if you made a prettier facebook it doesn't really matter do you know that it was kind of how jason freed and Basecamp got some initial notoriety was they made a better fedex.com oh really like that was the url no i did not know that about jason freed but uh being a fan <laughs> of him uh, i have to rethink that but i think and, and you know not to necessarily fault him for doing that that we're also talking about that was probably in 2000 
two or something yeah. that, that he did that. So there wasn't a whole lot of this well, they were social early network on, yeah. of sharing. Like it was just him kind of experimenting. And, and frankly, the FedEx experience and the post office experience were also awful. And he was saying, why can't this be better? Well, and, I, and I'll have to look it up, but I do see people that do that sort of like rethinking something. And I do like that. I've seen some agencies that spend time rethinking industries. Mm-hmm. And what I do like when they do that is if they, they focus on who the users are and all that. Like mm-hmm. I've seen people redesign boarding passes a million times. That's, yeah, right. that's, that's easy. That's a typography. But people that rethink the check-in and all that experience, like from top to bottom and can like point out why they did those. I kind of appreciate those because they're, they're not taking this arrogant standpoint that I, it's just as easy as doing this. They're more rethinking. And and I like reading through those to think Mm -hmm. I never thought about that aspect of it. There, there must be a better way. So yeah, I think there is a way to do it when you focus on the experience and not just the sort of visuals of it. So this is a question that I ask everybody on the show and I'm curious, especially from your perspective, what you find that you are most obsessed with right now? Most obsessed with. I don't know how broad to take this, but I'm obsessed with reading. Is that a oh, yeah. answer? Absolutely. I I don't know what, what got into me a couple of years ago. I just started I just started reading a lot more. I read a lot in grad school and then stopped because you just get tired and, and bored of it. And uh, the books you have to read in grad school are not page turners. And then I think it was like, <laughs> at some point I rediscovered that there's other books out there that were not those. Um, and again, growing up, I was, uh, I cheated on tests and I used cliff notes instead of reading Shakespeare. So I pretty much avoided reading a lot growing up, but I've gotten into it a lot lately because I find for me, uh, I, because I've, I've left the design nest and I'm focusing on new areas I don't know what I'm doing a lot. And so I'm trying to read I'm trying to give myself these sort of ad hoc educations. And I'm going to make a quick little pitch for reading because a lot of people are trying to find shortcuts to it. They're trying to use, I've used Blinkist, you know, for sort of summaries of books and it's good, but there's a lot of people that always try to find like hacks for like getting information. And and truthfully, there's not great hacks for it. And there are bad books that truly are redundant and fluffy, but what I like about books is that they they repeat things, they create themes in your head that stick with you a lot longer than... I, I mean, I like reading blog posts. I write them, but they're like supplemental to a good... It's like it's like supplemental to like a good meal. And in books, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm obsessed with right now because um, I'm sort of like rediscovering that there's a lot of great writers that put a lot of research and thought into these things, and then they write them in a way that... I know this is like the dumbest thing to be obsessed with because like reading, yeah, that thing that's been around for thousands of years, but <laughs> I feel the need to say it because I think a lot of people um, don't think about like what reading a book can do and it just helps these concepts stick in, into my mind a lot more than they would otherwise. Yeah, that's a great answer, especially um, <laughs> as you described, you're a little late to the reading party, but yeah, I have a lot of, I've, in fact, I've, I've tried to read some of the books that I quote unquote read in high school. So it's um, like Lord of the Flies, like these, these, sorry, Miss Rasky, if you're listening, I I didn't read that. I read the cliff notes. I mean, it was bad. I was not a great student. (laughs) Well, maybe before we let you go, I'm curious if you have a favorite piece of advice that you've received, or maybe one of your favorite pieces of advice for new designers at Innovate Map. Yeah. um, I'm trying to think if I've received this advice, but I think, um, one thing that I have, I guess one piece of advice that I, f- I feel 
is critical right now in, in the industry because things are moving really fast due to technology. Um, especially for those that are in markets that are highly competitive is be patient, be patient with your career, be patient in your job, give things time to, to reveal themselves. I worked at Autodesk for four and a half years. And that was the point at which I realized I, I, I had, I had gotten what I was going to get out of that. But I see a lot of people making that statement after six months or 12 months. And so I, I, I think it's important. Um, you know, Thomas Friedman wrote a book, um, gosh, I'm blanking on the name of it. You can all look it up later, but his last, Oh, the, um, it's something about the world accelerating. I cannot remember the name of the book, but I wrote a blog post like reflecting on it, but effectively everything is moving faster and faster and faster. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes, you become almost, you know, caught up in that whirlpool and think I've got to leave my job faster and I got to get a higher salary. But truthfully, some of the fundamental things that were true in the past are true today, which is be patient with your career, with your growth. There's no hacks for some of these things. I spent 10 years designing. And even when I left kind of active designing behind, it was like, you know, hand to, you know, tooth and nail to like, like clawing to, to, to keep a hold of it. Um, don't be in a rush to become a manager. Don't become a rush to get that job title. Just focus on your craft and getting good at it and appreciating that an entire year is really a drop in the bucket. So just, be patient with everything and, and always evaluate what you are getting out of something to figure out when's the right time to leave, like spend time on these things and don't let other people dictate that. Even though I'm dictating it right now, let this dictate it. But, uh, yeah, I would say patience is, is the biggest advice I would give any designer. Don't, don't rush these things. Good. Love it. Um, well maybe before we wrap up here, tell our listeners where you can find more about yourself and innovate map and find you guys online. Yeah, well, you can find us all over the internet. You can find us at innovatemap.com. Um, I connect with a lot of people on LinkedIn. Um, so if you message me there, I'll, I'll probably reply. So you can always look me up there. Um, we also have the Better Product Podcast, which I co-host with, with Anna Eaglin. And we talk to product professionals. And uh, we'll be, you know, by the time people hear this, be switching over to a weekly release of that. So um, definitely you know, check that podcast out as well. Yeah, I've had a chance to listen to a couple episodes myself and enjoy what you guys are doing. Thank you. So Christian, thanks for chatting today and thank you for being obsessed with design. No, thanks for having me. Okay, kids, that is show number 118 officially in the books. Thanks for listening to Christian Beck from Innovate Map and head over to obsessedshow.com to get all of today's show notes. I'd like to give a special thank you to the folks at Indie Design Week for having me out for the podcast workshop and to open up their keynotes on Friday morning. If you want to see more about that event, check out IndieDesignWeek.com. As we expand our topics here at Obsessed Show, please tweet at Obsessed Show and let me know who else you think we should talk to. Do you want to hear from video people, from authors, from painters? What kind of creators and creatives and makers are most interesting to you? Because that's who I want to interview on this show. Don't forget to check out that new 59 Second Friday series all about personal branding and marketing on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash Josh Miles. And it would mean a lot to me if you just hit that subscribe button. Every subscriber means a lot. 
You can get all of today's show notes on our website, still at obsessedshow.com. And if you haven't already while you're there, add your email address to our newsletter. I'll update you on some of my favorite new episodes and some cool things I find in my daily obsessions. Of course, all the links are over at obsessedshow.com to all the places you can find this show, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Spotify. So no matter where you find your podcasts, chances are you can listen to Obsessed Show from there. Just head over to obsessedshow.com. The Obsessed Show learned how to ride without training wheels at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Visit milesherndon.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.